It is difficult to craft a dumb, fun action movie that's actually fun to watch. Despite all of the odds, The Fast and the Furious might wind up being the most beloved action franchise of its era. Yes, I said that. And the thing is, I feel weird about saying that, but it's not a controversial thing to say. To put things in contrast, arguably the other most influential action movie franchise of this period is Michael Bay's Transformers films, which are very similar to the Fast and the Furious franchise and the, their emphasis on cheap thrills. However, the Bay Transformers films are marked by casual misogyny, cartoonish racial stereotypes, incoherent cinematography, gratuitous product placement, transparent attempts at military recruitment, and shallow, scummy protagonists motivated by idiotic short-term selfishness. Fast and the Furious beats them on almost all of those counts. Bay may be an accurate reflection of America's anti and the films are very successful and they must strike a chord with their audiences. Still, Michael Bay's clear contempt for the intelligence of his audience leaves a bitter taste in my mouth. Fast and the Furious, on the other hand, is a little different. The Bay Transformers films are saying, you're stupid, so here's some stupid dog shit for your stupid, easily amused mind. Fast and the Furious, their pitch is more along the lines that, Aren't dumb action movies a lot of fun to watch? Let's revel in some stupid nonsense for 106 minutes. Wee! <laughs> so, at the behest of my baby sister Sarah, we are running this series. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. This is our first of many episodes covering the Fast and the Furious franchise. You're welcome. Joining me on this is my family. <laughs> family! This will be the first of many. Okay. Aforementioned Sarah, the person who is responsible for infecting Sarah with the enthusiasm for this franchise, my brother-in-law Pete, the host of the Fearless Films franchise. Family! And my brother Sylvan, who just got roped into this. I was here. <laughs> it's a journey. I was forced to go on this journey. And now we're all going to take this journey together. Yeah, so about a week ago, Sarah messaged me and saying, hey, it's my turn to pick the movie for my episode, and I want to do the Fast and the Furious movies. And I said, can we start with the fifth one? Because apparently the fifth one is one that starts to get fun. And you're like, no. Nope, we got to start at the beginning. We got to follow it through. You have to see how they get to become secret agents. Yeah, so here we are. This is the only Fast and the Furious film that, to date, I had previously seen. I saw this when it was new. I saw it in theaters, which was almost 20 years ago, which bothers me to think about. Girl. I did not think much of this film when I saw it. It's the reason I skipped all the sequels. Uh, I saw it with a high school buddy of mine who... Um, I saw a lot of terrible movies in theaters because of this guy. I saw a knockoff of Rush Hour called Cradle to the Grave, which was a team-up between DMX and Jet Li, and Tom Arnold is the comic relief sidekick. That sounds awful, but kind of like a wonderful train wreck. You don't need to skip it. It has been completely forgotten by history for a reason. That's a bummer. Uh, hey, hey, I, hey, now, it's often confused with a movie from the same era, Romeo Must Die, which also featured Jet Li and a black counterpart. Romeo Must Die was good, though. Do we really think so, or have we just not watched it in 20 years? Touche. I also saw the Cat in the Hat movie, the live-action one with Michael what? Myers, because of this guy. Why? I also saw Triple X, the Van Diesel secret agent movie. Before this, before these <laughs> Before ones. he becomes the secret agent. 
in Triple X, his name is Xander Cage, and he's an extreme sports secret agent. Are we sure this movie wasn't made in the 90s? Does early, he have a lot of cargo pockets? No, early 2000s, and there's a lot of, like, jingoistic 9-11 patriotism in it. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, but uh, we're digressing already, so let's start with the plot of this. Opening sequence. On a deserted highway, a truck carrying electronics is held up by a heist crew driving driving three modified black fifth-generation Honda Civics with green lights under the chassis. Inconspicuous. Nobody will see them. Also souped-up Honda Civics. They're just driving the ultimate mom car. And also, let's just clarify. The electronics they're stealing are those, like, square cube TVs with VHS players in them. Yeah, that's that's what they're stealing. What we got for Christmas when I was, like, seven, just... A whole truck truckload of that. It's apparently worth like a billion dollars. This is not the aspect of the film that has aged the worst. <laughs> we'll be we'll be getting back to that. The next day, a joint LAPD and FBI task force sends police officer Brian O'Connor undercover to relocate the heist crew. Although the film doesn't reveal that he's an undercover cop yet, but I mean, if you can't guess, he begins his investigation at Toretto's Market, flirting with its owner Mia. At least that's what the plot synopsis says. He goes in there and orders a sandwich, and apparently that's enough to construe flirting. I mean, they're into each other. They hook up later. Spoilers. Anyways, Mia is the sister of infamous street racer Dominic Toretto, who is sitting in the back perusing a newspaper or something very ominously. Dominic's crew, because they're not a family yet, we'll be touching upon that, uh, Vince, Leon, Jesse, and Dominic's girlfriend Letty arrive. Vince, who has a crush on Mia, picks a fight with Brian. Dominic intervenes and tries to get Brian fired from his job and all this other stuff. Later that night, Brian brings a modified 1995 uh, Mitsubishi Eclipse to an illegal street race. Dominic arrives in a Mazda uh, RX-7 and initiates a drag race between himself, Brian, and two other drivers. Lacking funds because the cops didn't give him any stake money, Brian wagers his own car. Dominic wins the race after Brian's vehicle malfunctions, but the cops show up before Brian could hand off the keys. Brian, in his car, helps Dominic escape, but they accidentally venture into the turf of gang leader Johnny Tran, Dominic's racing rival. Tran, along with his cousin uh, Lance Nguyen, uh, destroys Brian's car. This leaves Brian and Dominic to walk to Dominic's house, and they start bonding. This is the most complex relationship in the film, and boy, was that a contest. They don't, they don't walk. They talk about walking, and then they take the yellow cab company home. Well, they had to walk to a payphone, and those were already starting to disappear by 2001. All right, later on, Dominic jokes that Brian owes him a 10-second car, you know, at the at the little house party that he's having. Vince, upset at seeing Brian at the house, has an argument with Dominic. The next day, Brian brings a damaged 1994 Toyota Supra to Dominic's garage to settle the bet. Dominic and his crew begin restoring the car after mocking him for a bit, and then Brian starts dating Mia. As this develops, Brian begins looking into Tran, convinced that his gang is behind the hijackings. While searching the garage one night, Brian is discovered by Dominic and Vince. Pressed for an explanation, with a gun pointed to his face, Brian lies that he's researching his opponent's vehicles for the upcoming Desert Race Wars. Yes, they're called that. The trio then sneak into Tran's garage, finding a large amount of electronic goods. Once again, those little cube TVs that have the VHS players in them. Billion dollars. 
Brian reports his discovery to his superiors, leading to the arrest of Tran and Nguyen. However, it turns out that Tran acquired these electronics legally. This leads Brian to confront the prospect that Dominic is responsible for the thefts. Brian is given 36 hours to find the hijack crew, with it being noted that the truck drivers are now arming themselves to repel further robbery attempts. The next day, Dominic and Brian attend Race Wars. What a name. There, Jesse, the nerdy gearhead of the crew, wagers his father's MK3 Volkswagen Jetta against Tran's Honda S2000, but flees with the car when he loses. Tran demands that Dominic recover the vehicle, and then a fight breaks out when Tran accuses Dominic of reporting him to the police. However, the security forces for this illegal drag race end up splitting it up. That night, Brian witnesses Dominic and his crew leaving uh, after having an argument with Mia. Realizing that they're the hijackers at last, Brian reveals himself to Mia and convinces her to help him find the crew before anyone gets shot by a trucker. Although, Brian doesn't actually tell Mia that the truckers are armed. She ends up rolling over on her brother without that info being thrown her way. Although he implies it a bit. It's those baby blue puppy dog eyes. Yeah, uh, Brian is really handsome, and apparently that's enough to win Mia over, despite his utter lack of conversational acumen and the fact that he is sleeping at the auto parts store that he works at. I believe you described his delivery as a wooden Keanu Reeves. <laughs> yeah, he's Keanu Reeves with the serial numbers filed off. More on that, we're talking about the, about the film's influences. I say that in scare quotes. Dominic and his crew raid a truck carrying DVD players. Vince gets shot while he's hanging off the, the truck because this truck driver, who is never directly seen by us, is really emotionally invested in protecting these DVD players and is just firing a sawed-off shotgun both at the crew and at his own vehicle whenever there's, like, a flesh in his way. Yeah, there was some debate over this between me and Pete because you know, I'm thinking that the truck driver is faceless because the movie wants you to sympathize with Dominic and the crew and to see them as characters and all that. And if you give the truck driver a face, you, you realize that they're shooting spear guns at some guy who's just trying to do his job. And also, apparently, the truck driver was played by an uncredited Kevin Sorbo, who at that time was best known for Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, and these days is best known for reactionary Christian propaganda bullshit. So, yeah. Brian and Mia arrive in time to rescue Vince, but Brian is forced to reveal his true identity when he calls in medical help. Dominic and the rest of the crew flee before the authorities arrive. Later on, Brian arrives at Dominic's house with the intention of arresting him. He's interrupted by Jesse, who has apparently been driving that Jetta the whole time, and he just shows up and starts begging for protection. Jesse is then immediately gunned down by Tran and Nguyen for welching on his bet. Brian and Dominic put aside their differences to get revenge, killing Tran and injuring Lance in the process. Dominic and Brian then immediately settle the dispute with a drag race because it's the type of film that this is. Racing solves everything. I was thinking this is comparable to the Breakin' franchise, except in Breakin' and Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo, everything can be settled by being really good at breakdancing. It settles gang wars, it can raise the dead. That, that does happen in this franchise. Both of those things. I was about to ask you to clarify, because once again, this is the only one that I've seen before. <laughs>
Uh, the race ends in a draw, but not really. Uh, Dominic crashes his vehicle into a truck. Instead of arresting him, Brian gives Dominic the keys to his own car, adding that he still owes him a 10-second car. Dominic, who is also really skeptical about this decision, escapes uh, from the police as Brian walks away, as if he's like a badass action hero who is just not turning back to look at that cool explosion he caused, which is metaphorically accurate. Yeah, <laughs> yep. In the after credit scene, Dominic is seen driving a 19 19- 70 Chevrolet Seville SS in Baja, California, and he just rolls off into the sunset. No, no, he's in Mexico. Yeah, Baja, California is in Mexico. Oh. You remember all of California was once a part of Mexico. No, I know, but I didn't realize that was in Mexico. (laughs) Okay, that's the film. Oh, what a film. These films get sillier, believe it or not. Okay, so before I start getting into the production, is there anything anyone would like to add? Uh, I'd like to share my personal history as the person who's to blame for all of this right now. Yes, yes, please explain yourself. Uh, so a buddy of mine was interested in checking out the franchise about the time it started to become mainstream popular. And I was like, sure, why not? What I did not realize is that his plan for the afternoon was we watched the first three in a row. Now, you might be thinking, the third one's that Tokyo Drift movie, and that's got to be the worst one in the franchise. But after you've just watched one and two, three ain't so bad. You know what? It just sort of gets in your brain. So you're saying, too fast, too furious. Both the number two is a lesser film than Tokyo Drift. Uh, To this day, after having watched the franchise a couple times through, yes, the second movie is the worst one. It is. All right, let's get into the production for this. All right, the idea of the film came to director Rob Cohen while he was reading an article in Vibe about illegal drag racing. It was entitled Racer X, which was a number of the working titles for this film, alongside Redline and Race Wars. I'm so glad. This was almost the title of the film. I'm so glad that somebody along the way was like, hey, that's a bad idea. The person responsible for the final name was producer Neil H. Moritz. His father used to own a a movie theater, and one of his favorite films watching in his dad's old movie theater was The Fast and the Furious, a 1954 Roger Corman racing film. He decided to buy the title rights of the film, but not the story rights. This movie and the 1954 movie have nothing in common aside from the title and that they're both about racing. Probably a solid choice. He just went to the 80s instead. It was fine. The screenplay was written by Gary Scott Thompson, David Ayer, and Eric Berquist. Yes, that David Ayer, the Suicide Squad dude. So I would just like to throw in my uh, amazement that people got paid for writing that. Once again, it's a Suicide Squad dude. You mean you you don't find so much meaning and depth in I live my life a A quarter mile mile at a time? Family! Once again, they're not a family yet. There is a scene flat out where Brian is on his little date with Mia and there's no romantic chemistry. And he's like, so how did the gang form? And she's like, they're not a gang. They're a team. <laughs> You're like, it's, it's supposed to be a family. This slips in with what, the fourth one? Fourth one. Fourth, fourth one. Okay. The stated influences on this film by the screenwriters include Rebel Without a Cause from 1955, Duel from 1971, that one makes more sense to me. Uh, The Road Warrior in 1981, duh. Point Break, more on that later. (laughs) The Need for Speed in 1994, and finally Grand Theft Auto in 97. Wait, wait, is there a Grand Theft Auto movie? Yes, there is. Okay. It's not connected to the games. At all? No, no, it's not connected to the games. Cohen initially wanted Mario Lopez as Dominic, Mark Paul uh, Gosselaar as Brian... (laughs) Dustin Diamond is Jesse, 
wait, this is just the cast of Saved by the Bell. Yes, the producers looked at it and it was like, this is supposed to be a Saved by the Bell reunion, except it's a car chase movie? No. (laughs) (laughs) Timothy Oliphant was approached to play Dominic and almost accepted the part. It's the main reason the film was greenlit, but he turned it down at the last minute because he had just starred in a remake of Gone in 60 Seconds. Also, Colin Farrell was briefly considered to play Dominic. That wouldn't have been terrible. Mia was written with Elijah Dushku in mind, but she turned the part down. Sarah Michelle Gellar, Kirsten Dunst, Bijou Phillips, Jessica Biel, and Natalie Portman all auditioned for Mia. Which is, yeah, that is interesting to think about. Was Natalie Portman having a down year? What was that about? Wait, 2001? Yeah, and it was being filmed in 2000. Well, she had a career. Hannah Menace. She would have been. 99, so she's. She was. 16 when they filmed that in like yeah. 97, 98. So she's, she's doing well. Yeah. I mean, she, she would have... She was never doing poorly. Right. Yeah. She would have been the character's age, I think, mm. uh, which would have worked out, but she's better than this movie. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like, why... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, people who auditioned for the part of Brian included Christian Bale, Mark Wahlberg, and Eminem. <laughs> no, let's go back to Mark Wahlberg because that's the movie I want to see. Oh, hey, Dom. What's going on? Say hi to your car for me. Boston. Hey, is this filmed in Boston? No, it's not. We're in California. Oh, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it went. <laughs> Producer Neil H. Moritz liked working with uh, Paul Walker on The Skulls and offered him the part of Brian. Uh, Walker was a big fan of Dottie Brasco, and he took the part because he liked the idea of playing an undercover cop. When Oliphant dropped out, Moritz suggested Van Diesel for the role. Despite having only played minor supporting roles up to that point, Diesel was reluctant to take the part, and he only agreed after several script uh, revisions. I have not been able to find out what these revisions are. There is a shot in the movie where he ominously walks out of the shadows. I have to imagine that was one of them. Like, I need to look as cool as possible. <laughs> the man is a, he's a D&D player that just likes to take his characters and put them in movies. I cannot disagree with Pete there. I think he just wanted so much drama. He wanted to roleplay. He has to. It's everything he added to that script must have been, like, some dramatic, like, swish into a room or, like... I want to believe every aphorism came from him. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Including that weird bit where uh, they're in the house party and he's like, you can have any beer you want uh, as long as it's a Corona. That is apparently paraphrasing a line attributed to Henry Ford where he's like, you can get the Model T in any color you want as long as it's black. Yeah, I thought that part was almost clever. And I should point out that that is likely apocryphal. The Model T was not available in black until a couple of years into its production. And also, when it debuted, it was apparently available in red and green as well. The film was shot in L.A. and Southern California from July to October in the year 2000. There were some issues. Uh, Neither Michelle Rodriguez or uh, Jordana Brewster had driver's licenses during filming, which is an issue because they're both street racers. They had to take lessons during production. During one of the fight scenes, Van Diesel accidentally broke a stuntman's nose with his punches. Brian and Vince's fight scene in the beginning of the film at the restaurant was initially choreographed, but they struggled to get it to feel right, so Walker and Schultz just wound up winging it instead. In contrast to the sequels, apparently, only two American cars are driven by the main cast in the film. Dominic favors domestic vehicles for pretty much all of the sequels. Apparently, you catch him driving a Japanese car in like the sixth or seventh one, and that's it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there are over 60 Japanese cars in this film. The race wars scene has 1,500 vehicles in it. <laughs> you can't get by it, Should I be able to get by it? <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I found very interesting is that the filmmakers approached homeowners you know, who lived in houses in the background shots and somehow got them to repaint all of their homes with muted colors in order to add contrast to the colorful cars, which is just a weird step to make, but, you know, it works. The cars look nifty. The houses look boring. Yep, they really stand out. Yeah, another thing that people like to point out is that Brian actually wins the railroad race by a few inches, which is pretty ironic considering that line about how it doesn't matter if you win by a few inches or by a mile as long as you win. One of Van Diesel's aphorisms, which in my head canon is that he insisted be inserted into the film. Accepted. The movie first got an R rating. This was a bad thing because this film is very clearly going to be marketed to t- dumb teenagers and the producers clearly didn't think that they'd be able to turn a profit if people under the age of 17 couldn't get in. So they revised the scene during the trucker rampage, just sort of de-emphasizing Vince's mutilated arm. And that was enough to get it a PG-13. That, that is apparently the issue that the censors had, because I'm not sure if you know how film ratings work. I have a vague understanding of it. Well, they submit the film, and then they get a rating back. The censors do not tell them why they gave the rating. They just have to look back on history in order to sort of, like, guesstimate. Which is kind of bullshit. Yeah, so your option is either to edit the film and then resubmit it, or appeal it. And, obviously, big studios have a lot more resources to both edit and appeal the film, which is a a drag on independent productions. One of the many reasons why the current MPAA rating system is bullshit, although technically better than the Hayes Code, but that's another episode. The score for this film was composed by a gentleman (laughs) who goes by B.T., who, of course he does. According to his Wikipedia page, he is a pioneer of trance music and a progenitor of EDM. It is mostly a mix of hip-hop, electronic dance music, and industrial rock. It might be the most dated element of this film, which is saying something, but I will die on that hill. It is extremely 2001. You have every idea, no question whatsoever, about what year this movie was shot in. And it's extremely distracting. Like, the scene where Jesse gets blown away, that's supposed to be dramatic. You're supposed to love this character or understand that the characters that you do love have affection for this character. And then the soundtrack is just like, Another thing that might be even more dated than the original score is all the needle drops. Because it's just rapid flashes of five seconds from various early 2000s, like, pop and Cristal uh, hip-hop and new metal. So you'll hear, like, three-second snatches from Saliva, or Hoobastank, or Machine Head, or Scarface, Ashanti, Ja Rule is in this. He also plays a minor character who refers to himself in the third person for some reason. This film also came out during the, like, eight-month window where it was cool to use Limp Biscuit in your car racing movie. <laughs> and it's not even Nookie, it's the Limp Biscuit Hokey Pokey. That's the real name of the song? No, the real name of the song is Rollin', 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 Rollin'. <laughs> but he gives you little Hokey Pokey directions in the chorus. This was the remix version that has Method Man and Red Man on it, but they don't use that aspect in the film, which makes me wonder why they used that version. They used the part where Fred Durst is rapping instead of the people who are good at rapping. It's 2000, man. Oh, 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 there's quite a bit of DMX. Oh, DMX. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, we had an argument over the end credits because we were just like, you, you referred to him as a singer briefly. And yeah. we were just like, well, what he does does not constitute rapping. But what he does does not constitute singing either. So he needs his own category. Right. So then what do we call him? Yes. DMX is beyond category. If that's the only thing you internalize from this film. Okay, let's start talking about the performances here. Right, first, let's talk about Paul Walker, who is... The only other performance I know him from, from the, uh, besides this film, is Pleasantville, where he's, like, one of the sitcom teenage boys, and he's very good at projecting that, like, faux, I'm made of cardboard, 50s sitcom pastiche character, which I don't think is on purpose, and in this film, I, I, I have confirmed my theory. I kind of forgot he was in Pleasantville, so I feel like that confirms the theory, too, because, yeah, he's... <laughs> not memorable yeah i don't want to speak ill of the dead and he seems like a sweet guy but um he's here because he's attractive yeah he's multiple times in the movie called pretty boy by very you know sexually nervous men who can't handle him i guess i don't know yeah mild undercurrent of gay panic throughout this film especially by vince oh which is weird because once again i i I do think that brian and dominic want to make out at least a little bit oh they're they're in love with they're in love with each other as the series progresses and you will see their relationship is the one that matters most out of all of them oh yeah yeah they're the kirk and spock of this franchise Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, who would not to go off on a super tangent? But who would be Kirk and who would be Spock? I'd say Dominic's Kirk. He is far more reckless. I mean, they're both really reckless. They're both really reckless. Yeah, but Kirk is suicidally brave. I would argue that that's Brian because <laughs> he fucks his own shit up for no reason all the time. And how many red shirts does he get killed over the course of his career? All the time. And <laughs> Dom is the Dom is the brains of the operation. If you can accept that statement, <laughs> You know what, you guys have already run the series, I will take your word for it, but we can revisit the Star Trek comparisons as we amble along. Sounds good. <laughs> Alright, next up is Van Diesel as Dominic. As it's been pointed out by various people, the Timothy Oliphant thing is actually pretty well known amongst fans of this franchise. I think even Van Diesel's mom will concede that Timothy Oliphant is a better actor, but I do think that Van Diesel is a better Dominic yeah, I can't I can't picture anybody else being dumb. Like it's the the part is just so very over the top, like it's over the top, but it demands you to deliver the lines with a straight face. Right. Yes. Like there are some lines that he delivers that I'm just like, I am impressed with you as a human being because you could say that while looking seriously at someone else and not laugh. Van Diesel is, I'm being charitable, a limited actor, but this role plays shamelessly to his strengths. I mean, there was a hot minute where it seemed like Riddick was going to be the thing that he's best known for, but at this point, it's beyond argument. He's Dominic. Yeah. And right, next up, Michelle Rodriguez is Letty. This is only her second part. What is, oh, was, uh, did she? She broke big with a uh, girl fight. Yeah, that was that was her first major role. She was dating Van Diesel at the time, which is odd because I don't think they had all that much sexual chemistry in the film. Even Not during really. that, even during that scene where they're inexplicably juxtaposing Tran getting raided by the cops with them just like making out and taking their clothes off and showing off Van Diesel's pecs, and it was like, w- why is this montage here? W- what are they saying to me, storytelling wise? How does this serve the narrative? They're giving you Vin Diesel's pack. I think it's actually implying that Tran has, in fact, lost the race wars. <laughs> <laughs> you almost said it with a straight face. <laughs> Couldn't do it. 
Anyways, you, you tell Rodriguez sticks around. She's in most of these, and you tell me by the fourth one she actually has a character. Yeah, she gets personality eventually. Yeah, and this one she's the the hot racing chick who gets to have sunglasses sometimes. Well, and she she's angry. She's oh, often angry. Key character component. She's in, and that's just in this movie. I mean, she is angry in other movies too, but there's like more complexities if you can call this movie complex. This franchise complex, but like in this one, she's just angry because Dom talks to other girls occasionally. Yeah, she has more dimension in Machete. Yeah. Yeah. More dimension in machete. All right, next up, Jordana Brewster is Mia. I have nothing to say about this. She's the token love interest. The most I can think about this is how weird it would be if Natalie Portman was this. Yeah, I mean, she's, um... She's fine. She's not given much to do. Right. It's not that she doesn't have a personality. I enjoy when she fucks with Vince. Yes. That's a fun scene. Oh, uh, yeah. She not... asked Vince what restaurant he, uh, he was going to take her to. And then she's like, oh, all right. Then, Brian, you can take me there. And I do think it's nice that, you know, when, when it looks like Brian's entering the house party, she's like, oh, shit, that guy I'm into is here. Let me fix my hair up and change my shirt and stuff. Yeah, because he's so impressive because he comes to her sandwich shop every day and orders a tuna sandwich with the crusts cut off. Like a five-year-old. I mean, if Paul Walker came into, you know, the cafe when you used to work there and got a coffee, you'd probably remember, right? Oh, I would remember. Oh, yeah. No, he. it, it would be Until you found out he lived where he worked. Right. And then, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you're pretty, but, like, maybe for a night, not for, like, a, that's my future husband. That's another argument we had when we were watching this film. Is like, you got no conversational game. You're sleeping at the auto parts place that you work at. I know you're attractive, but is anyone that attractive? Well, and it really doesn't take much, like you said, for her to flip on her brother. Like, he doesn't tell her he's going to help save him. He doesn't tell her anything about the guns. That the it's He's literally just pretty. And at that moment, the only other piece of information she gets about him is that he's been lying to her and he's a cop. Other people that I wrote down, Rick Yoon is Johnny Tran and uh, Chad Lindbergh is Jesse. I don't have anything to say about either of them. They are certainly in the movie. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're stock characters, and the actors who play them are okay at it. And um, Rick Yoon is very photogenic, and he, and, he, and he wears his dark clothing very well. That's about as far as I can go. I think it's kind of interesting that they try to, for like five seconds, talk about ADHD. Oh, or Jesse? ADD, I'm sorry, yeah. with Jesse. And they're like, you know, you sort of feel some compassion for him and you're supposed to like make you make him more endearing because, oh, he's so smart and look at all these things he can do with these engines and stuff. And, oh, he should have gone to MIT. Oh, no, no, no. I've got that. What's it called? Uh, attention, whatever. And you're like, oh, and he's like, so I failed everything except math. But engines, they just calm me, man. I don't know why, but engines calm me. I have friends who have ADD and ADHD and like they drink a cup of coffee. They felt calm, but like I've never heard them. <laughs> talk about like an engine the efforts to shoehorn in pathos is um i can understand where they're coming from and i guess it supports a dumb action movie as much as it can uh, and also maybe think of a bit where like dominic shows off the, the muscle car he's been making with his dad and yeah you know, how his dad was killed by a race car driver gone wrong he ended up beating the guy's face in with a with a wrench or something and Throughout the first two acts of the film, the cops are, like, holding this over Brian's head. He's like, you can't trust Dominic because he spent two years in prison for beating this guy with his wrench. And he was like, oh, he was just getting revenge over his dead dad. 
like this character audience. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's like the same thing with like the Jesse stuff when Jesse's afraid that is that's why he runs off from the race. Like they don't give you much information about Jesse's dad and his relationship with his dad, and all of a sudden he's like, "Oh man, I bet my dad's car, and I'm gonna ah fuck." And it's then like, wait, like, are we supposed to know who your dad is? What does that mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, very broad strokes. No more than what the what the film's plot requires, and yeah, maybe even not up to that. All right, reception for this film. Uh, it got mixed reviews. I'm sure you're shocked to hear that. 10 out of 10. I mean, mixed? There was more than one opinion. <laughs> the praise that the film got was mostly for its car chases and Walker and Diesel's chemistry. And they do play off each other very well. And I do think that the car chases, for the most part, look pretty cool, except for the, you know, the little bits where they, like, zoom into the car parts as, like, various aspects of the car either kicks into high gear or breaks down because of the awkward CGI, and you go into ludicrous speed, and there's all this double exposure stuff for no particular reason. That really took away from the climactic last bit with the train for me. I just couldn't stop giggling. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't really go away for a few movies. Yeah, but the truck heist is, like, completely practical practical effects with no computer gimmickry thrown in and that was easily the best action sequence in the film indeed well i don't know where you acquire a harpoon crossbow but i'm interested (laughs) if anyone knows contact me most of the criticism was leveled for hackneyed storytelling and the idiotic ending Yeah, okay. Uh I mean, I think that handing Dominic the keys tracks with everything we've learned about Brian up to that point. That he is, in fact, the worst cop in L.A.? Yeah, the ending is dumb, but that's because Brian is dumb. He's so bad at his job. He's so, so bad at his job. He's the worst. But happily exists in a universe where he can do well despite this. Mm-hmm. And also in the real universe, it's not like it's hard for a um, upper middle class white dude to fail upwards. Nope. Despite getting two people at least killed in a, in an undercover thievery operation, he goes up in the world. Alright, this film was a big fucking hit, in case you were wondering, because it has eight sequels and counting. Its budget was $38 million, so pretty low end for uh, early 2000 standards. It made $207.3 million. Wow. The soundtrack went multi-platinum. Uh, there were two soundtracks. The hip-hop tracks were on one CD, and then all of the new metal stuff was on the second one. Along with, I have to look at his name again, BT's original score pieces. That guy's name is one letter short of a McG. He must be cooler. He doesn't need as many letters. <laughs> it also got some awards. There is a Razzie's knockoff called The Stinkers. <laughs> And it won a stinker for most intrusive musical score, which yes. richly deserved. <laughs> yep. There's also something called the Taurus Awards, which is the Oscars for stunts, and it swept the car categories, which is expected. Yeah. That is no surprise. <laughs> yeah. All right, and with uh, that out of the way, let's talk about the themes. Do you actually have something written down? I have several paragraphs. I'm right. intrigued. All right, first off, I want to talk about the development of Van Diesel's character. Because in the first one, Dominic's a bit of a fuck-up, a bit of a loser. He screws up everything he tries. His main goal here is to rip off some DVD players from a truck, and he can't even do that. Yet somehow he owns a garage and a sandwich shop and a house. I think he inherited a lot of that from his dead parents. Yeah, we never learned what happens to their mom, do we? She's never mentioned, I don't think. Ever. Yeah, also, this film has the first uh, outside barbecue, which, from my understanding of the sequels that I haven't seen yet, the casual outdoor barbecue is something of a character-building motif in this film. There's one in all of them onwards, at least when the franchise figures out what it's trying to do. 
Yeah, we skip it in two and three because those don't focus on the well, Toretto's. Yeah, but in two, you don't have Dom, you just have Brian. Ugh. In three, you have nobody. In three, you have nobody. You're in Japan. Except for Han, you who is apparently a fan Han. favorite character. Han jumps from three into the mainline franchise, and it's better for it. Yes, Tokyo Drift is not for anyone else but Han. As far as I can tell, I mean, in this film alone, all of the really good character moments, of which there aren't that many, a good chunk of them are in that outdoor barbecue scene, like the the part where they make Jesse say grace because he had to reach for the chicken first, and he and he gives thanks for various like gearhead car stuff, and there's like, hey, give something for that. That's a sweet scene. Yeah, it's it's cute. Yeah, that that, that worked a lot better than the ADHD one. Yep. All right, now uh, here's the part where we compare this to Point Break. <laughs> Okay, Point Break is a 1991 film directed by Catherine Bigelow before Ooh. she shifted her career to directing jingoistic torture porn. It is a great film, and it is essentially the template for The Fast and the Furious. The Fast and the Furious is an unofficial remake of Point Break, all the same plot lines, except Point Break is about surfing, and the Dominic Brian duo is played by Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze, who also have a lot of homoerotic chemistry. Yes. And Sarah hasn't seen Point Break. Not yet, but I really want to. I bet you'll love it when you finally get around to it. Sylvan hasn't seen it either. I'm not sure if Sylvan will like it. I am predisposed to enjoy it, though, because I do love Patrick Swayze. I love Patrick Swayze and I love Keanu Reeves, so I don't think there is a way for me to dislike this movie. Also, the main character's love interest, Lori Petty. Yes, this movie was made for me. Why have I not seen this movie yet? I do think that sometimes the Point Break comparisons are a little overstated because Undercover Cop Infiltrates Robbery Crew isn't exactly the most original idea in the world. It's just that these two films aren't that far apart in terms of time, and Point Break didn't turn into a franchise whereby the fifth one, they're secret agents, and we don't have movies where Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze are going on surf-related spy missions, which is kind of sad. Yeah, it's very sad. Because I want to go to the all universe where those exist <laughs> and recently they did a point break remake which is trying to be like the goofy silly over-the-top fun fast and the furious movies and it's a little interesting that that the bitten has become the biter and also uh, a telling example because i haven't seen the point break remake but it is apparently not very good which means that once again these fast and the furious movies if they're as fun as everyone's saying it is that's not an easy feat to pull off the point break remake is pure garbage Turning things back over to Michael Bay comparisons, I want to point out that the uh, Fast and the Furious movies, from the first one onwards, has a diverse cast. However, even in this one, as broadly stroked and as incompetent as a lot of the dialogue is, these are people with relatable goals, and they have clearly defined personalities and needs and wants, which is not common in, say, bad boys, where they're just sock puppets for ethnic stereotypes. I think that's a part of it that clears through. Apparently later on in the later Fast and the Furious movies, they start bringing in like action movie stars from Latin America and Asia, yes. clearly to you know get people who live in those countries to go out and see Fast and the Furious, which works, but at the same time, that means that all of these like interesting characters are like pinging off each other and upping the ante in the cartoonish glory. Oh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I would rather not have to slog through three more of them before I get to the <laughs> before I get to the good ones. But another thing I want to talk about is the cinematography because Bayham, as people have put it, is uh, some people say that the shaky cam and the no focus on any individual aspect, rather than just a smorgasbord of chaotic nonsense hitting you, is a constant succession of coma-inducing fireworks. People who like Michael Bay and think that he's misunderstood and that he is due for an Alfred Hitchcock-style revisionist renaissance will say that Bayhem is reflective of what it's like to actually be ensconced in violence. You don't know what's happening, you're, you're all shook up and all that, whereas aside from a couple of scenes in here... Fast and the Furious has pretty straightforward spatial geography. You tend to know in the action scenes where each character is at any given moment. You know, the only real exception being that fist fight between Vince and Brian at the beginning of the film. There's a whole lot of shaky cam there. So much shaky cam. That brings me back to that point where, I mean, intentionally making your fight scene confusing, disorienting, and chaotic can work. But for me personally, in my opinion, that only works in small doses. You have vertigo, Sarah, so... You do not like shaky cam. No, I, I get headache. When we went to go see Doctor Strange, I couldn't. I For years, I've been wanting Sarah to watch the Jason Bourne trilogy, but literally two seconds of those movies would kill you. Yeah, I would just, I would just be like, okay, well, I'm going to go to bed now, and I'll wake up in two days. I, I hear they're not too bad until green grass shows up. Another thing I wanted to touch upon was flanderization, which is... It's weird to talk about. This movie is very silly. I'm not saying that this movie is not silly, but apparently it gets sillier. It's hard to believe that flanderization can be applied to the Fast and the Furious, but I'm sure I'll believe it as it keeps going. So they let go of the loose hold they had on physics after like the third movie. I would argue. Okay, I know the, the boat thing. Movie. The boat thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm talking more about the scene where somebody gets launched off of a car and so somebody else catches them with their moving car. Yeah. In like the fifth or sixth movie. Yeah, and aren't they like <laughs> driving off a cliff while they do that? That's a different c- scenario. <laughs> I think we can save the boat thing for one for the movie where the boat thing happens. <laughs> Oh, don't worry, we'll be talking about the boat thing at length when we watch that movie. I just, I have a question. Does it work at least like the Roadrunner cartoons where at least their made-up physics is consistent? Yes, actually. Okay. (laughs) All right, Roadrunner physics. Fifth movie on. The last thing I want to talk about is exaggeration and heightened reality, because despite the fact that we have touched over on this clip thing and the leaping the building thing, which is in the seventh one, and apparently is the most famous set piece in the franchise, I believe. Cars don't fly. But yeah, whenever yeah. whenever this franchise reaches an impasse between plausibility and fun, it just drifts hard into in, into fun. Does not even there is there is a delightful scene in what is that six or seven when The Rock just like flexes his cast off. Yes, that was in the marketing. Yeah, he has a cast, he, on, his he has arm, a cast on his arm, and he breaks it by he, flexing. He hears that he needs to go, you know, like help and and, and take care of business, and so he he's in the hospital with his daughter, and he just flexes his arm and the cast comes off and you're like what that's not real life once again the base for this in the first movie is still not what we would call realism out of the various sources i consulted for my notes on this my favorite was this article written by a vehicular engineer about the plausibility of the cars in this film and he's saying it's probably not as bad as a layman would assume but no lots of things don't work for example Just about every car in this film 
can go a lot faster than it actually can. None of the vehicles in this film, including the Honda Civic, surprisingly, <laughs> can plausibly break 150 miles per hour in under a quarter of a mile, no matter what you put into it. But NOS, Ryan, NOS. I do believe that NOS can make cars go faster, but yeah, that that, that stuff is like the force. It's, it's, <laughs> the, it's, it's video game logic, damn it. Every single racing game we've ever played, off-road. It's the nitro button. You just press the nitro button and suddenly you're fine. They're not playing with realistic car chases. This isn't Bullet or the French Connection where it has to be tapped into some kind of reality. The first racing scene alone had 15,000 individual sound effects. I can That's believe it. fantastic. Okay. That scene was CGI. Yeah. Yeah, a good chunk of it was CGI. Yeah. All right, and that blows through the entirety of my nose before we sign off. Is there any parting words that we would like to throw in before we return to you for Too Fast, Too Furious? Oh, don't get both of those numbers. Don't worry. They continue with that. They really enjoy I mean, Tokyo Drift not so much, but when they when they really like ham it up and are self-aware, the numbers become real. Eight is the fate. Of the fear, the fate of the furious. I get it. Yeah, Fast Five. Fast Five. They don't even put the furious in the title. It's just Fast Five. Uh, I guess my contribution to this discussion is that I couldn't look directly at this movie for too long, <laughs> so I missed a few things because I had to take my attention off periodically and look at my phone instead. Yeah, you know, when you looked at the uh, when they're robbing the semi, you were like, "Wait, it's day now." <laughs> Well, that's what led to the confusion of they. it was the race wars, then it was overnight and robbing the semi, and then Jesse shows up later, and you're like, were you just driving for 12 hours? <laughs> I just, I figured I, he had been exited from the plot already, and I just missed it, and then he was there, and like, oh, okay, they are tying that up. Okay, and with that, we will sign off, and we will return to you in another episode, because we're doing all of these. <laughs> Hooray! It's a journey. Good night, everybody. Family! Family!